Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin, and I'm joined by my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. As well as the man in charge of our global projects tracker, Rory Chapman. Hi, Paul. And in this episode, we'll be discussing infrastructure banks and their experience around the world, as well as looking at some of the biggest plans in global infrastructure development to deliver new cities, and then return to the increasingly common theme of industry capacity. And Rory will round things off with a few of his top project picks from recent weeks. So let's begin with the Infrastructure Bank. So in January 2023, Republican Congressman Daniel Webster and Democrat Congressman Colin Allred introduced a bipartisan bill into the House of Representatives to create an infrastructure bank for the US. Now, Jonathan, you've been looking at this in some detail recently. What can you tell us about what's going on there? Well, it's quite interesting. And I think there's been a lot over the years put forward about infrastructure banks. And there was almost one as part of IIJA over a year ago, but it didn't quite make it through the negotiations. So the fact that it surfaced so quickly again, I think is something to note, particularly as for the next decade, IIJA supplies the funding that the infrastructure industry in the US needs. But you know, these congressmen have put forward their case. They're saying that it's going to facilitate private investment, which will obviously be music to the ears of this industry. And it will create, as I quote, much needed mechanisms for projects to access necessary funding. So you might be thinking, as a lot of people in the industry have said, is what's the need right now? They say that 1.3 trillion, I think it was from IIJA. But there are a number of different reasons and roles that an infrastructure bank can play. One of the things that they say is that it could be a conduit to try and attract funds. It can help provide an even longer view than than a decade. That's important. But as Paul, I'm sure you'll be able to explain, you've covered the Canada Infrastructure Bank and also the UK's new one, that they can do lots of different things. What are some of the ways that other places are doing it? Yeah, well, I think to your point, actually, before I go into that, on the way in which it can be a kind of longer term play. I think it's quite interesting in creating an institution that is hopefully going to sit there for the long term rather than being a bill that's based around here's some money, go away and do something with it. Actually having that institution that is designed to be there for the long term, not just for a period of disbursement of money effectively is quite interesting. But yes, to your kind of point around what we've seen elsewhere, obviously the UK has its infrastructure bank which was created a couple of years ago now, it's finding its feet still, just getting off the ground. It's done, I think its chief executive said recently, it's done about 17 deals to date. I think there's a lot of questions still around the market about whether the bank is needed to do all of those deals. And that's definitely, I think, going to be an issue for the US market and a kind of question that they'll have. Yeah, totally. I mean, immediately when I started talking to people in the industry, they say, we've got TIFIA, we've got WIFIA, there's a number of different programs that provide and have provided a lot of long-term funding for projects. But they also do have to be reauthorized fairly regularly. So that extra security would be a pro. And the congressmen do say they want it to be a complement to these programs, not a replacement. And I think that would be welcome. It would be a tool that everybody would use. But the instinct that I'm getting is that people in the industry haven't fully got their head around and that's not criticism it's fully surprising it's only been a year that IIJA has been in the system we don't quite know how that will change the landscape 
haven't used those tools to their full capacity yet, haven't even used Tiffia and Wifia to their full capacity. And they've recently changed thinking about Tiffia and, you know, they raised the um, percentage cap that the financing can do up to 49%. So it's a changing landscape already. And whether now is the right time to throw another instance in there, I think you have to have some really strong reasoning for it. And when you look at the reason why Canada and the UK have done it before is because there's a clear market failure or there's a clear reason to do that. And recently, this week, we saw Massachusetts, their governor has now introduced a state green housing bank because there's a specific need to retrofit these affordable housing units. So that is so clear, it's direct and We'll obviously see how that plays out. It wants to also bring in private infrastructure, but you can see the thought process that's happening there. For the wider US, you know, infrastructure industry, it's harder to to make out because, like I said, there's such clear funding. You've got IRA coming in and really just putting the jetpack onto green investment. You've got Chips Act producing an incredible amount of infrastructure for manufacturing and large-scale gigafactories and things like that, IIJAs covering all different bases. So it's not a question of money. Authorities have the money for the next 10 years, as I said. So what's the need? Yeah, and I think that question on the money issue is a big one because, as we have talked about on this podcast before, you know, there's a changing landscape in the US around particularly equity providers and kind of them positioning themselves of what their need is because as all this money is coming through from the federal government – increasingly authorities are saying well we don't need a huge amount of equity investment we're getting investment from elsewhere and so that landscape is changing around what equity providers can bring and so in that sense the first thought of having a bank well what does a bank do a bank provides money but if you don't need that money then what's it there for and you know come back to the, to the UK market i think having that clear focus of what it's needed for will be important i'm not sure necessarily the UK has as clear a focus as maybe some would like in terms of the UK Infrabank. I think they would perhaps argue differently. But certainly if you think of previously the UK had the Green Investment Bank meant to invest in obviously green technology, green infrastructure, didn't do an awful lot of deals. Those in favour it would argue that it catalyzed projects that maybe wouldn't have got off the ground otherwise, but was relatively soon sold off to Macquarie and has since that is now a fully private sector entity that that does private sector deals. So, yeah, having that clear focus of what you want to get out of a bank is, I think, really important. Yeah, definitely. And one of the cases that's put forward is that the US is so decentralized compared to, you know, the UK is its own just single entity. It's not 50 states like America is. And that can also produce some challenges as well for instance your nationally important infrastructure that say you need an entity to really spearhead say a net zero transition or some projects like i'm thinking about usas and their water projects which are too big or difficult for one entity to do and so these federal entities are really helping to support and catalyze these projects make them feasible you can see the proof is in the pudding with USAce's program is that it's going from strength to strength in bringing private sector finance in to deliver difficult projects. And would it be able to happen without that extra level of support? You know, a lot of people would say that it wouldn't. So 
I think if you can find, as it was saying, that real definition of where it would come in, what role it would do, a lot of people would be in favour for it. Yeah, and that question on market failure, I think, is something that, again, the UK Infrabank has been quite clear on in trying to address that. Because, as I've said, there was, and I think still is, nervousness in the private sector around what the bank is going to do. I think people in the UK market historically felt that the European Investment Bank would often do a deal that was stepping on their toes effectively when and coming into projects where it wasn't necessarily needed, but was actually undercutting the private sector by providing cheaper finance. As I say, the UK IB's chief executive, John Flint, has been quite clear on that flexibility is, is going to be the key for this. And the bank is able to come in pretty much anywhere in the capital stack in theory. So if there is equity, but there's a problem with finding the debt for the for the project, it can come in there and you know, vice versa in other places as well, you know, whether it be a guarantee underpinning a project, that kind of thing as well. So I suppose if you've got those range of tools, you can see that it can potentially get projects off the ground that aren't necessarily, you know, going to get off the ground otherwise. I think another big question around this is whether any US infrastructure bank would be allowed to make a loss effectively. I think the UK bank, for example, is required to make a profit. I'm fairly sure the Canada bank has, or certainly had when it was first established, a kind of a loss level hardwired into it, which kind of makes sense really, because the whole point of this is that you're investing in things that the private sector won't invest in because they deem it too risky. But they're really important for future development, particularly around energy transition, that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of whole point, really, is that you want the public sector bank to be taking a risk that will bring in private sector investment. And within that, for the private sector, they want effectively the the bank, the infrastructure bank, to be taking a kind of first loss to a certain extent to encourage them in. So I think that'll be an interesting dynamic as well as whether whether we do see that kind of thing included in the final text of any bank. As Absolutely. It, it, it does say in the current text that it would be able to take equity stakes, but it's not completely fleshed out as yet. It is in very early stages. And I think I'm right in saying that it's going to be privately capitalised. So what implications that would have compared to it being funded by the state could make a really big difference in in the kind of parameters that it sets. But again, it does come back to the function of you see in america there is no shortage of money going into infrastructure and that does go all the way from the really low risk to the high risk sectors so you kind of have to be able to say what is that project that needs to have this extra cushion in there because at the moment the tailwinds are so strong particularly with the subsidies that have come out you can't really point to green investment which is a lot of what the other ones do to say we need to kick this start because that is just rocking in America right now. So it's a really interesting landscape. And I, I think just going back to what I was saying right at the beginning, it has been in the conversation for a long time. The fact that it was part of the conversation during the negotiations of IIJA shows that even whilst this huge stimulus was being prepared, a direct entity to help facilitate long-term infrastructure was also there alongside a once one-off legislation so it's fascinating to see how this will progress whether it will get through i don't think anyone can really well no one can say for sure of course but certainly one to watch and i think certainly when you look at the roles as you've explained of what other places around the world have done with it 
you know, opinion is, is the jury is still out in any of the jurisdictions so far. So yeah, very much so. And you know, even in Canada, I think it had quite a slow start and was roundly criticised for that. And there were even you know people standing up in Parliament in Canada sort of saying it needs to be abolished within a year or so of it being established. And it's got over a lot of that criticism now. And I think one of the key things it's done is actually develop a blend of quick wins where it's been able to just deploy money quickly for relatively small projects alongside some private investment while also still working on the longer term projects. And I think having spoken in the past to Aaron Corey, its chief executive, that's one of the things that he believes helped to really stabilize the bank and, you know, set it in stone really in in the Canadian infrastructure investment system. But again, that kind of brings us back to the previous point that I was making around, well, if you're making those investments, wouldn't the private sector be tempted to make those investments anyway? You know, where do you draw that line? It's a constant battle, I think, for anyone in this kind of role to be making that judgment call, really. Definitely. And I guess this kind of speaks to the fact that there are multiple options in the uh, legislation and including say just trying to help projects get approval and get good advice in to help catalyze private investment so maybe as an entity to really to help stimulate the pipeline rather than trying to build it itself and take equity in itself maybe just as a facilitator it could be really useful but again in IIJA you have some really strong elements of value for money analysis and for a public authority to apply for funding to get advisors. So, you know, it's kind of six of one and half a dozen of the other at the moment. You you can argue it both ways, which is why I think it's an interesting time to talk about it, because we have a lot of focus on the here and now with IJA, but a conversation like an infrastructure bank does try to open it up to a much longer scale. And that's kind of the element that I wanted to focus on in this larger piece. So it will be on the website soon. Excellent. Yeah, well, that'll be definitely worth a read. One other area in this InfraBank question is around that aspect of it as a source of expertise. And I think, you know, the UK InfraBank in particular has got some pilot programs where it's providing advisory services to local authorities. And that's, you know, on the providing advice on the delivery, finance and options you know, for a number of authorities and a number of projects in those authorities. So, in that sense, you know, again, a kind of repository for expertise sounds really good, but you know, do you need a whole new architecture and a whole new structure in which to house that? If you think, in the, even in the UK, you can argue there's local partnerships, there's the IPA, okay, they're, they're kind of relatively small institutions, but the bank is probably never going to be a, a massive institution either. And in the US, obviously, there's the Build America Bureau, not to mention, obviously, the various states that have their own houses of expertise, particularly in the departments of transportation uh, in many states now. So, yeah, I guess that's another question, really, that is up for for debate. Yeah. If you used it, say, for projects that were of, as I said before, national importance or perhaps sensitive things like nuclear power plants or something where there's a specific need for federal insight and, and guidance to help unblock it, you can see... There are a number of potential roles. I think listeners will be so good. Like, kind of, we've jumped around all the different hot points, but that's because it's a difficult conversation. And I think trying to get that consensus of what it would look like, there'll be a lot of talk and debate to do that. But it's got bipartisan support, so it'd be interesting to see what happens next. Yes, definitely. And yeah, well, we'll 
and read with interest your article as well in terms of jumping around those points that we've been talking about today as well. Yeah. Now, I think it'd be good to turn our attention to a phenomenon we're seeing in some emerging nations where PPPs are being seen as an ideal way to kind of underpin not just the delivery of one discrete project or indeed a bundle of projects, but actually to provide the basis for whole new cities. You know, many in the infrastructure space will know of Project NEOM, which is the multi-billion dollar plan for a new city in the desert of Saudi Arabia. While you may well have also heard of the Indonesian government's plans to use a raft of PPPs to support its proposed new capital city, Nusantara. And I think these are quite interesting developments that's kind of taking PPP very much out of its comfort zone in terms of the scale and the types of projects that we're probably going to see coming out of this. And certainly it'll be taking investors potentially out of their comfort zone as well. Now, just on Project NEOM, our Middle East correspondent, Alicia Buller, who unfortunately can't join us today, but I'm sure we'll get her on at some point to have a proper conversation about what's going on in the Middle East, actually. But she recently published a piece about NEOM, which highlighted some of the important considerations. So that's obviously worth looking into. But I think one of the key issues for any of these projects is going to be around risk. And, you know, I mentioned just now that private sector being taken out of the comfort zone on this and investors being taken out of the comfort zone. I think, you know, how any party can really quantify the risk relating to a school, a hospital, or even a, a toll road when they have no real certainty or really a way of knowing how many people are going to be using those is going to be, you know, that's a big ask for anyone. And I know that there are ways around it and we've sort of had conversations with various people who've sort of suggested, well, we're looking at new forms of PPP, new forms of partnership and arrangements and contracts that can be developed around this. So that's a positive, but it's going to be a real challenge, I think. Absolutely. It's fascinating. And I think I've not spoken to anybody in the industry who hasn't at some point brought up one of these programs. I mean, What's going on in Saudi Arabia particularly, it's not just Neon. They've got the Cube as well, which is just enormous. But PPPs have been put right at the centre of this. And the proof really has started to come out. Saudi Arabia has been closing a number of deals. Indonesia has also done quite a lot of PPPs in the past. So the understanding of the fundamentals is clearly there. These are not just like pie-in-the-sky dreams. But what these PPPs will look like. I mean, it really is going to be fascinating. I know there was a post recently by someone involved with designing the PPP element of NEOM saying that these are not going to be like what we've seen before. Like you said, the, you can't really do a demand risk deal when you have no idea what the demand will be, particularly when it's going to be out in the middle of the desert. It's not even connected to a city, but there is no question around the funding in Saudi Arabia. It's a bit different in Indonesia, where they're trying to move the whole capital from, or at least the administrative part, from Jakarta to a whole nother island. I mean, the complications in that are just immense. But like I was saying, with the funding in Saudi Arabia, they're saying, well, the IMF has said that as long as the oil price per barrel is about $80, they'll be able to afford to do their program. At the moment, it's like 75, I think it is today. So it's kind of around there, but you can see long-term Saudi Arabia is not strapped for cash. So maybe they will go for some kind of availability type thing. Or, But for Indonesia, it's not quite as straightforward to see where the money will come from as it is in Saudi Arabia or what type of PPP they will use to meet that challenge. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Indonesia is interesting, isn't it? Because they don't have the, the oil dollars to fall back on. So, you know, I was talking to someone recently who made the point that because they don't have that to fall back on, they're going to need private partnerships. They're going to need private investment. But they don't have the same underpinning of certainty that you get from perhaps the petrodollars that you get from Saudi Arabia. So how do you square that circle, I think? We do know that there is a lot of multilateral assistance going into projects like Nusantara. Recently did a story about the Asian Development Bank and looking for a new head of that project. And we know that they are working quite closely there. So perhaps there will be a lot of you know, development finance in, in the mix. I don't want my previous comment to sound like I was disparaging Indonesia. It is a thriving economy. It's a really strong economy. But it will have to involve at some point some demand risk element to this huge project because it is in the billions and billions it is everything they're literally starting from scratch so making that bankable and attractive for the private sector investors if one of these major programs cracks it and manages to find a new formula to attract this money in there and develop huge scales it's going to be a real game changer for the industry to do things on this size because we have seen other programs say in Egypt where they've built whole new cities and new capitals and so far it hasn't taken off or hasn't garnered the attention quite like these programs have particularly not for our industry so it's fascinating it is certainly something which has got the entire industry on watch and we've seen it more and more companies are turning their focus particularly European companies are turning their focus to Saudi Arabia and are putting offices out there and are applying to work there and are signing deals there already. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point, actually, isn't it? That both these cities actually are going to have plenty of kind of UK influence, really, in terms of the organisations that are involved there and the, the kind of experience of the people who are going out there. And obviously, a lot of the experience was forged in PFI, which you know was generally used for single discrete building projects. So and yeah, you know, obviously in recent years that's evolved. We now see quite a lot of regeneration projects for town centres, you know, districts of cities and whatever else coming forward. But that's still a long way from what we're talking about with Neom and Nusantara. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And just talking of foreign entities joining those domestic markets, Saudi Arabia and China have signed a couple of interesting kind of bilateral agreements which have opened up and are hoping to inspire some major Chinese banks, you'd assume that the Chinese construction firms will follow. And everyone knows Chinese firms can build and they can build a lot of stuff quickly. So there's going to be a lot of competition for these big projects. And we've seen in Colombia, their Metro Line 1, really, really fascinating PPP project was won by a Chinese or was being led by a Chinese firm. So the expertise is there. It's going to be a big competitive sphere. But some companies have kind of been speaking about Saudi Arabia as if it's putting all the eggs in one basket, as if it's going to be bounty for everyone. But I think there will be competition there as, as well. Yeah, that'll be good to see, I think. And you know, if it can generate good competition across the different projects that are coming becoming available, then yeah, it should be a good market for a long time to come. Definitely. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the industry's capacity, having just spoken about those massive mega projects that we've 
been discussing. You know, this is an issue actually that spans the globe when it comes to PPPs, but I think for different reasons, really. You know, plenty of people have read some of the articles that we've written in recent months about the need for more expertise in the UK market, particularly around expiring handback and how you kind of support those programs. However, in the US, the problem is similar, I think, in terms of the need for more people to come through, but actually for some quite different reasons. Because as we were talking about earlier, you know, as projects ramp up thanks to the federal funding that's coming through, there is that question of whether there are sufficient teams to take on this work, which then obviously leads to questions around value for money, competition, all that kind of thing, and whether those can be consistently achieved. Are some projects going to end up you know, falling by the wayside because they can't simply can't attract the number of bidders that are needed? So, yeah, just want to get some of your thoughts on that as well, Jonathan. Well, it's something that we've spoken about, I imagine, probably continuously since time immemorial. But we have also seen in Canada, there's been quite low competition on a, on a number of projects. Also in Colombia, which was a really exciting area, a couple of their major projects, the Canal del Dique and also the River Magdalena, only pulled one bid between them. So projects can have problems with competition. But for me, the most interesting side of this is the way that the models have tried to respond to that. We've spoken before about progressive P3s, but the progressive P3s provide a way for authorities to tender out and get companies to compete at a much earlier stage than having to spend their time preparing bids. And then ultimately, only one team will win out of maybe four. And instead, you get this close tie-up between an eye-to-eye, some would say, combination between one public sector and one private party. And and that just enables all of those different actors to go and bid on a number of projects, which just helps increase competition. Yeah, and it also helps to reduce costs, doesn't it? Because they're not spending all their time bidding on projects and going through those hoops that take you from bidding with five others down to three, down to two, then down to one, and then finally getting to financial close. I think if you're able to cut that process in half or even more, then obviously you're going to reduce your bidding costs and be able to focus your energies on the next bid if you haven't won and and move on and, and spread yourself a little more thinly, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well for the UK, it's a different issue that's bringing about this question around capacity. But there's clearly, I think, an opportunity in two ways, really, around, you know, whether it be retired people coming back into the market and we're sort of starting to see that. And I think the IPA in particular has been sort of pushing that as an opportunity. But also, I think we've seen people leave large organisations to kind of strike out on their own and sort of hold themselves out as advisors. And I think more and more as handback ramps up, we're probably going to see people doing that as they recognise that actually there's an opportunity there for them to be the PFI expert and, you know, maybe spend 10 years as they head towards retirement, perhaps just doing that kind of work. And from the public sector point of view, I think that's probably quite an attractive thing as well, because you can pay for the expert without having to pay the fees that they command as part of a larger organisation. So, yeah, interesting, I think, how that market's going to emerge and change. Yeah, it really does depend on at what stage the industry is or that jurisdiction is in their kind of PPP journey, because... We've got another podcast coming out soon where we've spoken to AIAI, which is the Association for the Improvement of American Infrastructure. And they are helping to stimulate the capacity of the industry, not just on the public sector side and developing public sector skills, 
but also on the private sector side, where they're trying to help develop a program to help train junior members of organizations on the private sector who want to upskill and get used to the fundamentals of PPPs and develop in that direction. So I think you're seeing in, say, in America, that those really early stage growth, the right kind of growth in, in getting the expertise, which is proliferating in response to there being anticipated growing demand, which hopefully will happen in scale. But that's one of optimism. In the UK, where it's in handbag, the questions of capacity are on a completely different scenario because, like I said, there's exciting pipelines for people to go elsewhere. You see a lot of Australians in America as well catching on to that wave. So it's a really mixed picture, I think. Yeah, it is. And the landscape is going to change and ebb and flow over the years, isn't it? And well, we'll certainly be covering it and keeping an eye on what's happening and how things are changing as well. So I think we've got, as you say, we've got the podcast with the AI, AI coming up and we'll also be doing a lot of written work on this as well. Now we're going over to Jonathan and Rory to discuss some of the latest projects catching the eye. So Jonathan, over to you. Great. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. So obviously, I've got Roy with me. He leads our uh, projects tracker, who's really on top of all the projects that happen around the world, got to the bottom of it. So what have we seen over the last month or so? So we've seen quite a few movements in terms of some of the larger projects in uh, this side of the pond, as well as over in the US. A couple of really interesting ones that have caught my eye in particular, the Hammersmith Bridge project. So many West London residents will be all too familiar with the trials and tribulations of Hammersmith Bridge. It's been dragging on for quite a few years now. It's been closed to traffic since 2019 due to structural issues. I think we all get the fact that the bridge is a fairly ancient structure, Grade 2 listed, one of the oldest mechanical suspension bridges in the world, constructed in 1824 nearly 200 years old, so there was never going to be a quick and easy solution to restoring it. But the fact that it's been closed for the previous four years seems kind of symptomatic of the lack of infrastructure investment in the UK over the last decade or more, just the time it's taking to progress, really. So I think it would be fair to say that it's been moving at a sedate pace. Current update is a prior information notice was published by Hammersmith and Fulham Council back in May last year. So the project is gradually moving towards procurement. What model is it going to be, Rory? So the model used is going to be Design, Build, Finance and Maintain, DBFM. A second pin was actually issued at the end of May this year, just a few weeks ago, for stage two of the project, which is the strengthening element, with stage one being the stabilisation works, which are expected to be completed by autumn this year. Now, the strengthening works are the more substantial element of the project, with estimated costs of 150 to 200 million. There's an industry day for prospective bidders taking place on the 3rd of July and a tender notice formally launching the pre-qualification stage is due to be issued on the 14th of September. So local residents yeah. will be hoping this one moves forward, as will the rest of London. And as will the industry. I think like, the fact that there is a DBFM project in the heart of London, I mean, I can't remember the last one that wasn't a regeneration. So it's really interesting to see it come forward in that form. Yeah, hopefully that can keep progressing. As you said, it's taken a while to start. And I know there was some kind of wrangling around, you know, the role that TfL were going to play in it. But it's great that it's really come online. What about in the US, what are you seeing? So Aloha Stadium redevelopment is another one that's kind of been 
in the uh, pipeline, you could say, for a little while. First launched as a procurement in September 2019, it had originally been tendered as a single project with private partners being sought to deliver both a new stadium as well as an entertainment district under one contract. Then it was decided that the uh, project would be split into two separate contracts for stadium and the entertainment district. Most recently, last month, it was announced that it would revert back to being delivered as one integrated project. So there's been quite a bit of back and forth on this one, not too dissimilar to the Hammersmith situation in terms of the time it's taken to get to the procurement stage. But a new approach is actually going to be a design, build, operate and maintain contract using both state and private financing. So it's being used as a way of sort of transferring responsibility for long-term funding over to the private sector, which seems to be the right way to go about things in this case. Interesting. Yeah, I remember covering that one quite a while ago. And we've seen that Hawaiian projects have fared in lots of different ways and some of them haven't gone great. I remember the Heart Rail Line projects where that became a bit of a political football as well. So, I mean, I think this project at one point had shortlisted bidders or at least that they'd had proposals in. So to keep changing it is, as a message to the market, it'd be interesting to see who's going to bid again for it because how much confidence are they going to have, I guess, is the question. Anything else in the US? Well, the Florida K-8 school project is one that's recently come into procurement. It's being procured by the school district of Lee County, only the second school project being developed under a P3 in the US, first being Prince George's County Schools Bundle in Maryland, which is currently at the shortlist stage. So it looks like this could be an emerging sector in the US in terms of the P3 model being used as a means to deliver new schools, which is quite an exciting development. Yeah, definitely. I think, like you say, Prince George's, they did one bundles kind of underway and now they've got the second bundle. But to see it proliferate into other jurisdictions, but how did this one come about? So the school actually has now issued an invitation to negotiate following an unsolicited proposal. So other proposals for the project are now being considered. So it looks like this was actually initiated by the private sector, which I guess you could say is a positive, but it depends on which angle you're wanting to take and that side of things. Well, it's an interesting one from the private sector, because if you think what an unsolicited proposal allows them to do is prepare and try and initiate from different jurisdictions, which whilst they obviously will consider all their options, maybe they're not quite aware of all the different options available to them. So it could help speed up that growth. And But I think the fundamental difference now is that Prince George's County have shown that it's a feasible, viable model that can deliver some much needed benefits. Maybe Obviously, it won't be right for every project, not every place will be capable of doing it. But yeah. Clearly, Lee County are looking at this as a as a potential. So a really interesting development. For sure, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Rory. My pleasure. Thanks, John. And thank you both. That was uh, really good. We've had a bit of a bumper edition running around quite a lot of content there. So thank you everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next time.